Good morning. Welcome. It's good to see all of you guys. Thanks for braving the winter storm that we're having. And uh, I'll try and get you out of here in a reasonable amount of time. No promises, though. We're studying in Mark chapter 10, and I'd encourage you to turn there in your Bibles. Um, I am convinced, beyond any shadow of a doubt, that Jesus is the Christ. He's the Son of God. He's the Savior of the world. And I believe with all my heart that he lived, and he died, and he rose again, and one day he will return, and he will establish a kingdom that will never end. It will go on and on forever, and you'll be glad that it goes on forever because it's that good. Now, I'm convinced of that for a a number of reasons, more than I could count today, but there's two things that I think stick out from our passage that really have me convinced that Jesus is worthy of our worship and our praise. Uh, Number one is this, and they're connected together. Number one is this, the unbelievable, and that's the right word, it's unbelievable the amount of influence that Jesus has had on our world. It's unbelievable. When you think about it, this is a man who was born to an unwed teenage mom. His dad was a handyman, a day laborer. Uh, He didn't receive any formal training, never traveled more than 200 miles from his hometown. He never led an army. He never held any political office. Uh, He never uh, wrote a book. People wrote books about him, but he never penned a book by himself. Uh, He never did anything generally associated with greatness. We don't know that he even owned a home. When he died, he died a penniless, homeless preacher between two common criminals. Uh, He didn't even have money to bury himself. Uh, There was nobody that came to his memorial savers. He never did anything generally associated with greatness, and yet he is by far the most influential person who's ever lived, and it's not even close. You cannot think of the second most influential person. That's how far and above Jesus is, above every other person. Now, you take that and then you add it to this reality, this fact, that Jesus predicted that this would happen. Think about that. Let that land on you. Jesus, little Nazarene, they said nothing good comes from Nazareth. That was his hometown. Uh, and, And yet, in his ministry, in his life, it's recorded that he said, heaven and earth will pass away. All the the moon, the stars, the sun, everything in the cosmos will pass away. Everything on the earth, the mountains, the canyons, the rivers, uh, the buildings that we're building, uh, the empires, the nations, the kingdom, heaven and earth will pass away, but my word will never pass away. Jesus said that when he was still alive. He predicted his greatness. Just think about that. Now, you put those two things together, and the only thing that makes any sense The only way to explain that reality is that Jesus is exactly who he claims to be. And because he's exactly who he claims to be, he is worthy of all honor and glory and praise and submission. He's worthy of it. Now, I want want to help you see um, today, I want to talk to you about two paths to greatness. How did Jesus get to this place where he was the most influential person, the greatest person to ever live? How did that happen? Mark chapter 10, beginning in verse 32. Let's all stand in honor of the reading of God's word. As we stand, I want to greet everybody that's watching online. Today is kind of a snow day for a lot of people. Uh, There are a lot of people that are cooped up in their house right now, and they don't have anything better to do. So share this message. Uh, Go ahead and click share, like, whatever. Uh, The more you share, the more you comment, the more people are going to watch, and the more chance that somebody's going to hear a message from God that will change their life. So do that now. As they're turning, Mark chapter 10, beginning in verse 32. 
They were on the road going up to Jerusalem, and Jesus was walking ahead of them. The disciples were astonished, but those who followed him were afraid. Taking the twelve aside again, he began to tell them the things that would happen to him. See, we're going to Jerusalem. The Son of Man will be handed over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death. Then they will hand him over to the Gentiles, and they will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him, and he will rise on the third day. James and John, the son of Zebedee, approached him and said, Teacher, we want you to do whatever we ask you. What do you want me to do for you? He asked them. They answered him, Allow us to sit at your right and at your left in your glory. Jesus said to them, You don't know what you're asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or be baptized with the baptism that I am baptized with? We are able, they told him. Jesus said to them, you will drink the cup that I drink, and you will be baptized with the baptism that I am baptized with, but to set at my right or my left is not mine to give. Instead, it is for those for whom it has been prepared. When the ten disciples heard this, they began to be indignant with James and John. Jesus called them over and said, you know that those who are regarded as rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, And those in high positions act as tyrants over them. But it is not so among you. On the contrary, whoever wants to become great among you will be your servant. And whoever wants to be first among you will be a slave to all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Let's pray. Father, we come together. We've closed our eyes. We've bowed our head. Uh, We've gathered around your your word here in this place and and online, Lord. And uh, we do all these things because... We honor you, and we respect you, and we acknowledge that you are greater than we are. And we acknowledge, Lord, that we can't do this life. We can't do what our heart is longing to do because we're so weak. Uh, We can't do it without you. So, Lord, please come and meet with us in a very real and tangible way. I pray that you will meet every person exactly where they are. Uh, Wherever they're watching this, whatever state of mind they're in, there are people here in this room, there are people online, they're anxious, they're depressed, they're angry, they're bitter, they're confused, they're living in doubt, they're living in fear. And I pray, Lord, that you'll meet them right where they are and you'll supply for them exactly what they need today. Father, I pray that you'll speak through me, that I might be your vessel, Lord, that I might be your instrument, that I might disappear so that you might increase in this place. As you stand there with your eyes closed and your head bowed, pray a prayer. I ask you today to pray for the people around you. Just pray silently that the Lord will bless them. Pray for everybody that's watching online, everybody that will hear this message, that their heart will be touched. And pray that God will speak to you. Father, speak to us. We're ready to hear what you have to say. In Jesus' name, amen. You can be seated. In Mark chapter uh, 10, verse 32, we see that the disciples and Jesus are on a road trip. And Mark uses the language that they're going up to Jerusalem. Uh, This this, uh, scene, it happens right around the Dead Sea, one of the lowest elevations on the planet. Jerusalem is found on a mountain. It's called Mount Zion. And so they they are climbing uphill. There's an elevation change. And uh, Mark paints this picture that Jesus is leading the way. Uh, Mark and Matthew and Luke, uh, they all recount the same story. And in all these stories, it, 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 it describes Jesus as he is determined to get to Jerusalem. Luke, Luke says it this way, Jesus resolutely set out for Jerusalem. The King James Version says it this way, Jesus set his face to go to Jerusalem. He's determined to get there. In the same way, when I finish preaching today, I don't see any of the pregnant ladies, every Sunday a pregnant lady is determined to get to the bathroom as soon as I get done preaching. Never fails. 
And so Jesus is, nobody's going to stop him. Nobody's going to slow him down. He's getting to Jerusalem. And the disciples, it says the disciples who are following Jesus, they are astonished. Why are they astonished? Because Jesus has explained to them time and again that when they get to Jerusalem this time, terrible things will happen to Jesus. And so they know that there is nothing good that's happening when we get to Jerusalem. Only bad things are happening. And they are astonished that Jesus isn't going kicking and screaming. One of my children, she hated kindergarten. And every day dropping her off, it looked like we were committing a felony. You know, because it was like we dragged her out of the van. She's kicking. She's screaming. She's, she's yelling. She's asking the police, call the police, whatever, you know. And then we dragged her into the school building. We threw her in the door. We slammed the door. We ran out to the van, and we sped off. It was like a reverse kidnap. Jesus is not going to Jerusalem that way. He is leading the charge, and, and his disciples are astonished. They are astonished at his bravery, his courage, and his selflessness. And then you've got a group of people Mark describes as followers, and they're, they're in behind the disciples. They're not as close to Jesus, and, and the followers of Jesus, they're afraid. Why are they afraid? Because if that's what happens to Jesus, who's the feeder of the 5,000 and the miracle worker, and he is this good teacher, if that's what happens to him, then what might happen to us? They're afraid. And so Jesus picks up on the vibe, and so he pulls everybody aside. They, they take a pit stop, and he, he says to them, he's going to tell them exactly what's going to happen. Verse 33. See, we're going up to Jerusalem. When we get to the top of this hill, the Son of Man, Jesus is uh, using a, a title. Uh, this is his favorite title of himself. Whenever Jesus refers to himself, he uses this title. He says that I will be handed over. Other translations use the word there, betrayed. I'll be betrayed over to the chief priests and the scribes. This is the Jewish ruling class. And they'll condemn me to death. So that, that indicates there'll be a trial. And in this trial, I'll be convicted of a capital offense. And then they'll hand me over to the Gentiles, non-Jewish people. And those non-Jewish people will mock me and spit on me and flog me and kill me. But on the third day, I'll rise from the dead. This is at the bottom of the hill. What happens when they get to the top of the hill? Judas betrays Jesus with a kiss. He's handed over to the temple guards who arrest him. And then they drag him off to the high priest's courtyard. And there in the middle of the night, they have a trial. You remember this. And at the trial, there's all sorts of false witnesses brought against Jesus and, and all sorts of false accusations. And they interrogate Jesus. After the interrogation, they convict him of blasphemy, which is punishable by death. But they don't have jurisdiction to murder Jesus, to carry out an execution. So they have to hand Jesus over to the Roman Empire. And the governor of Rome interrogates Jesus. And then he, his hands are tied and he's forced to execute Jesus, even though there's part of him that doesn't want to do it. And the Romans, non-Jewish people, they are excellent. They have mastered the art of humiliation and, and execution. And so they, they mock Jesus. They strip him naked and they put a blindfold on him and they punch him and they say, prophesy. If, if you're a prophet, prophesy who hit you. And they spit on him. And then they lead him up a hill, and they, they, they had ripped all of the skin off of his back with a whip. They lead him up a hill, and then they stretch his arms out, and they nail him to a cross, and then they place him up on a vertical beam, and it's there in that place that he dies. You know the story. And then three days later, he arises again. I want you to think about the accuracy and the precision with which Jesus predicts his own death. Now, I don't know about you, but for me, if there's a man who can this accurately predict his own death and resurrection, I'm just going to go with whatever that guy says. 
right? If he can accurately predict his own death and resurrection and then just pull it off, whatever he says, that's what goes. And you see, Jesus doesn't just save us. He, he didn't just come to save us. He's come to lead us, right? And here's the problem. We are so stubborn and so knuckleheaded and so hardheaded that we don't always follow, right? We don't always get it. And that's what we see here. Verse 35, James and John, the sons of Zebedee, they approach him. I want you to see this. This, this is amazing in a bad way to me. Jesus had just predicted this terrible thing that was going to happen. And, and um, the, uh, these two men, you know, Jesus is saying, he's, we're going to get to the top of this hill and excruciating things are going to happen. And, and their mind is not on Jesus at all. What's it on? It's on themselves. What do they say? Teacher, we want you to do whatever we ask of you. Doesn't that blow you away? That in that place, in that moment, instead of having a heart for Jesus, they are so preoccupied with their own agenda that they have the audacity in this moment to ask that question. Now, uh, James and John are part of Jesus' inner circle. These are a couple of his very best friends, and this is how they treat Jesus. Uh, The other um, accounts of this event adds the detail that the mother of James and John also went with them to have this conversation with Jesus. Come to find out that the mother of James and John is also the sister of Jesus' mother, Mary. And so their mother is Jesus' aunt. That makes them Jesus' cousins. And so his best friends and his cousins, not concerned about his well-being, they're concerned about their own agenda. And they're asking for favoritism and nepotism, right? Showing no regard for Jesus in the process. Verse 36, what do you want me to do for you? Jesus asked him. Once you circle that phrase, we'll come back to it next week. Verse 37, Jesus, they answered him, allow us to sit at your right and at your left in your glory. And so they're, they're, they're saying, okay, we don't really get the whole, you know, you're getting arrested and trial and beaten, and we don't really understand that, but we're really interested in you rising part. We're really interested in you being elevated, and we think your kingdom's coming, and when your kingdom comes, we want, you, we want a, a prominent place in your kingdom. Uh, And so maybe they have in mind uh, a celebration dinner, and they have the seats of honor, one on the right hand, one on the left hand of Jesus. Maybe they have in mind a throne room, and there's the throne of Christ, and they're sitting on either side as as Jesus' key advisors. And, and, And their mind is, let's settle this debate, let's have this conversation before you get preoccupied with dying and rising again. Verse 38, Jesus said to them, you don't know what you're asking. And see, that's the problem. That's the problem. You see, in, in all of us, the Bible says that, um, the Bible says that um, eternity is written on the hearts of men. Now, there's twofold to that. Uh, the, the onefold is that we realize that we're not created just for 70 or 80 or 90 years. We are eternal beings. Like our soul, that's why we grieve at funerals. It doesn't feel right to say goodbye to somebody because that love is always going to be there. And so that's what eternity means. It also means this, though. It means that there is part of us that looks at the world around us, and we say to ourselves, there's more to life than this. There's eternity. There's greatness written on our hearts. There's more to life than just working and paying taxes and paying bills and and having a house and eating McDonald's and watching football games. There's more to life than this. Right, And so this longing for greatness, this longing for meeting, this longing for significance, that comes from God. That's not the problem. Here's the problem. We don't understand, when we ask to be great, we don't understand what greatness really means. And so Jesus is going to show us today that there's two paths to greatness. 
One is, one is the world's path, and one is God's path. You don't understand what you're asking. Are you able to drink the cup I drink or be baptized with the baptism that I am baptized with? And so Jesus says, you don't understand. When you ask to be great, you don't understand what you're asking for. You think it's all just fun and games. You think it's all just you know power and privilege. But the truth of the matter is, if you truly want to be great, if you truly want to be significant, then you're going to have to drink a bitter cup. If you really want to be great, if you really want your life to matter, then you're going to have to be baptized by fire. Jesus says, are you really able to do that? Verse 39, they answer in such an arrogant way. They say, we are able. We are able. Jesus says, you don't know what you're asking for. Do you really think that you can handle this? And they respond with so much certainty as to say, yeah, of course we can. But the truth of the matter, they don't even know what Jesus is talking about here. If you pause the story and you were just to go to James and John and say, hey, when Jesus said cup, what did he mean by cup? What's that mean? When Jesus said baptized by the baptism he's going to be baptized with, what, what is he talking about? If you pause them and just quiz them, they have no idea. This is what they're saying. They're saying, we don't know what's ahead of us, but this is what we know. We are the sons of thunder. We are the sons of Zebedee. We are the sons of thunder. And so whatever comes our way, we'll be able to handle it. We are able. Now, this is what, what we could accurately say is irrational confidence. Do you know anybody that's irrationally confident? The Bible, the Bible says uh, vain conceit, vain conceit. Now, uh, this is a key attribute, attribute to the path of greatness in our world, isn't it? Like the Bible, the Bible, when it talks about pride, it talks about pride as a sin. It's a great vice. The Bible says pride comes before the what? The fall. The Bible says um, God opposes the what? The proud, but he gives grace to the humble. The Bible says there are seven things that God hates. You know what number one on the list is? The number one thing that God hates? Haughty eyes. Proud, arrogant eyes. Eyes that look down on other people. Eyes that look in a mirror and are self-absorbed. Haughty eyes. And so the Bible describes pride as a great vice, but in the world we're living in, pride is viewed as a great virtue. It's a strength. It's a prerequisite in order to accomplish greatness by the world's standards. People who aspire to the highest seats are generally those who believe they are most deserving of it. Do you know how um, you can make it in Nashville or Hollywood? Now, these are two places where, by the world standard, these are some of the greatest people, right? They have the largest platform. They have the most followers on Instagram and YouTube. They have the most influence. You know, what they say, it carries a lot of weight. And so these are great people, by the world standard. How do you make it in a place like Nashville or Hollywood? You need a whole, 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 whole lot of self-confidence. You've got to really, 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 really be full of yourself, right? Because you look in a mirror... And you see your talent or you see your beauty and you think to yourself, I am God's gift to the world. You know, and everybody needs to be aware of me and my talent. That's the way you have, you have to have that mentality. And you have to be so irrationally confident that you go to Nashville and you see all the other beautiful people. You go to Hollywood and you see all the other talented people and you say to yourself, well, I'm better than all them, Right? And you got to be so irrationally confident that you will still go to these little hole-in-the-wall bars and keep playing night after night. You'll still go to all these sleazy auditions night after night because you know eventually somebody's going to see just how awesome you are, and they'll invite you onto this huge platform. That's what it takes in order to be great 
by the world's standards. Do you know what it takes to be the most influential person on the planet, to hold the greatest seat on the planet, the President of the United States? You know what it takes? It doesn't take great wisdom. It definitely doesn't take masterful tact. The last two presidents have proven you don't need either one of those things to be the president. You know what it takes to be the president of the United States? You have to be a megalomaniac. You have to be half a sociopath to understand the weight of this seat and aspire to it. You have to be half crazy to want to have that job, right? It's irrash, it's vain conceit. And, and people may say, well, what's wrong with self-esteem? But the truth of the matter is there's a fine line between self-respect and self-obsession. It's a very fine line. And oftentimes our self-esteem comes at the expense of our consideration of others, which is why James and John come to Jesus alone. They don't want to have an open dialogue with the rest of the 12. They don't want to have a debate about this. They're trying to edge them out. They're trying to get to the seats before anybody else does because in their mind, greatness is a competition. Greatness is survival of the fittest. Greatness is the cream rises to the top, and there's only so much room up there. And so they come. They come alone. They're arguing they are more deserving of these seats than any of the other 12. Jesus said to them, you will drink the cup I drink. You will be baptized with the baptism I am baptized with. Jesus says, you, you, will, you will achieve greatness. Your life is going to have a lot of significance. You don't understand it yet, but you will drink the cup. You will be baptized in the fiery baptism. Um, James and John, uh, James is known as, today he's known as James the Greater. How did he get that name? Well, of all the 12 disciples, the people closest to Jesus, he was the very first one to die for his faith. He was the first one to be martyred. And John, his brother, was the last disciple to die for his faith. He died on exile on the island of Patmos, which was a prison island. And so it's interesting that these men, uh, they got to a point where they're in their faith that they so selflessly loved Christ and the church that they were willing to die for their faith. That's pretty surprising they ever got to that place considering how self-centered they're acting right here, isn't it? Something changes in them. Verse 40 but to sit at my right or left is not mine to give. Instead, it is for those whom it has been prepared. Matthew adds the detail here, by my father, by my father. So Jesus hints here at his self-submission. He hints at the reality. We don't talk about this a lot, but Jesus willfully subordinated himself to the father. He took a more humble position. He submitted himself. And so Jesus, the name above every name, modeled a humble life throughout, from birth to death. Verse 41, when the disciples heard this, they began to be indignant with James and John. Jesus, the king, he models a culture of humility, and yet his followers continue to operate by the ways of the world. Consequently, there's competition and envy and strife among them. I am so glad after 2,000 years that there is no longer any competition in the church. Aren't you? I could tell you some stories. Gerald could tell you some stories. Dave could tell you some stories. But the truth of the matter is, here we are 2,000 years later, and many churches and many Christians, we don't understand what it means to be great by God's standards. We are still taking cues from the world. And as a result, there's backbiting, and there's jealousy, and there's politics, and there is positioning, and there's favoritism, and there's envy, and there's jealousy, and there's strife 
even in the church. Look at verse 42. Jesus called him over and he said, you know that those who regard are regarded as rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and those in high positions act as tyrants over them. Jesus says, you know how you're acting right now is exactly how the godless world acts. You, you don't look any different from them. He says, you've seen it with your own eyes. They get power, they get in a position of power, and what they do is they start lording it over other people. In other words, they start acting as if they are gods among men. They start acting as if they are better than you. They start acting as if you are beneath them. When, when, men, when godless people get in power, they start treating, treating themselves like they are God's gift to the world. And then they become tyrants. And they start doing things to oppress you because they don't want you to rise up and jeopardize their power and their privilege. That's how the godless world acts. And, 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 and they, Jesus says, you know that's how they are. You've seen it. Because remember, Jesus was born in Bethlehem. And Herod heard there was a king born to the Jews in Bethlehem. What did Herod do? Herod the Great is what he was known as. He was great according to the world standard. What did he do? He went and killed all the babies in Bethlehem, Right? Because he had this power. He was afraid of anybody, and so he lords it over them. And he thinks I can get away with it because I don't have to. Uh, I, can, I can do whatever I want because look at me. I'm like a god among men, and I don't have to follow the same rules as everybody else. So I can go and kill all the babies in Bethlehem. Now, that's the way it was in Jesus' day. Is it any different today? The pandemic has been evidence of the corruptive power, the corruptive nature of power, isn't it? At the beginning of the pandemic, we're seeing people, we're seeing these videos of people just dropping dead right in the middle of the streets in China. You remember seeing some of those videos? And so initially, we gave executive emergency powers to the governing authorities. And everybody was fairly agreeable with those terms because we thought we were in a, a, an extreme case and we needed executive emergency powers in order to keep everybody safe. And so initially, I think everybody was on board with that. But as time wore on, this is what we all started to see with our own eyes. It became less about the pandemic, and it became more about politics. It became less about the pandemic, and it became a whole lot more about power and control, didn't it? I'll give you some examples. Uh, there's a governor in California, Governor Newsom, and he mandated, he wrote an executive order mandating that you cannot have more than 10 people at your house. And you, he, he mandated that the restaurants be closed to in-person. You could only do takeout. Well, a week later, he was photographed at the most expensive restaurant in L.A. with 20 of his closest friends, and they're having a meal, not a mask in sight, because he, he, he's in this position of power, and he can lord it over you. Uh, it, it rules for thee, but not for me. I'm a god among men. Um, there's also, you know, this uh, monoclonal antibodies that proven to be a very, a very effective treatment against serious COVID. Okay, so in Florida, the governor of Florida, he started setting up these drive-through stations where you could get the infusions. And this was proven to be very effective in treating COVID. Well, Gov uh, President Biden wrote an executive order. Uh, uh, secure, he, he, he took control of the supply of monoclonal antibodies. And this is the reason he said it. He said, I want to make sure that these antibodies are equally distributed, okay, equal distribution. There was not a problem with the supply. There was plenty of supply. And, but, but what he wanted, he wanted to keep monoclonal antibodies from going down to Florida because Nat looks, this Republican governor, I'm a Democrat president, this makes this Republican governor look good for him to work this out. And so lives are lost for the sake of 
political points. Now, I'm not, I'm not trying to make a, a statement about the pandemic. This isn't even really about politics. Here's my point. People at the highest levels of authority and power, they do not care about you. They don't. They care about power and control. They are not motivated by the common good. They are motivated by selfish ambition and vain conceit. That is the way of the world. Verse 43, but it is not so among you. Jesus says, it shouldn't be like that. That's how it is in the world. That's all they know. All they know is the world that they, the 60, 70, 80, 90, 100 years they get on this planet. And so, of course, they're going to claw and scratch and bite and lie and cheat and steal to climb to the highest position that they can climb because this is all they know. They're trying to be the God of their own universe, but you know better. It shouldn't be that way in the church. It shouldn't be that way in the kingdom of God. You are to live, he says, on the contrary. You are to live a contrary life, a countercultural life. Joe B. Hall, he passed away yesterday. He was a, a legendary coach at UK for several years. I was watching the telecast yesterday. Jay Bellis, who was an announcer, he made this statement about Jay, Joe B. Hall that kind of surprised me. It, it, it stuck out to me. He said this. He said, Joe B. Hall, he proved that you could be a fierce competitor and a good human being. That those two things aren't mutually exclusive. It's possible to be a a fierce competitor and a good human being. And at first I heard that and I was like, well, duh, of course, everybody knows that. But then I got to thinking about it. And I know several people that work in athletic departments and, and, and I have conversations with them about it. And so they have firsthand knowledge of some of these coaches that are at the highest level. They have reached the pinnacle. They're, they're, they're in charge of the largest programs, multi-million dollar organizations. They're in charge of it. And this is what I know from talking to these people. Most of these coaches are egotistical, narcissistic jerks. Most of them are. Joe B. Hall was the exception. That's what Christ is saying. You're supposed to be the exception. You're not supposed to look like them. You're supposed, and so if you want to be great, there's nothing wrong with wanting to live a significant life, but you just got to do it the right way. If you want to be great, if you want your life to matter, if you want it to have a lasting meaningfulness, he says, be a servant. On the contrary, whoever wants to be great among you will be a servant. Now, this word is, uh, in the Greek is diakonos, which is a word that is most commonly used to describe someone who waits tables. Now, I'm of the belief that every high schooler, before they get their diploma, they should have to work in fast food for at least three months. I'm of the belief of that. Because you learn a lot of valuable life lessons working fast food. Amen? How many of you worked fast food before? You learn a lot of valuable lessons. Number one lesson is probably get some sort of specialized training or education so you don't have to do this your whole life. That's probably number one lesson. But here's another valuable lesson that I learned in fast food. You treat everybody equal. That's the way it works in fast food, right? Uh, Because, for instance, somebody pulls up in your drive-thru. It doesn't matter what they're driving. Back in my day, they didn't have these fancy cameras. You didn't know. You know, you're just hearing a voice, right? And so it didn't matter if they were driving a Lamborghini or a 1992 Cavalier held together by duct tape. It doesn't matter, Right? Uh, they order a junior bacon cheeseburger, then guess what? I'm going to open a junior bun, I'm going to put a junior patty on it, and a junior slice of cheese, and a tomato, and a slice of lettuce, and two pieces of bacon, and a swath of mayonnaise. Boom. Every burger looks exactly the same, right? And it's going to cost you $4.10, okay? 
It doesn't matter if you're driving a Lamborghini or a Cavalier. It doesn't matter if you're homeless or you're Oscar Shebway or Michael Jordan or LeBron James. You come up to my counter and you order a bowl of chili, guess what? That bowl of chili is getting scooped out of the same pot, and it's got the same day-old hamburger meat in it, okay? doesn't matter. You get treated pretty equal because we, we're, we're getting paid uh, you know, minimum wage. We're, we're, you don't impress us. We're just here to serve you some food. Right? And so what if we took that mentality from Wendy's and we applied it to every day? Isn't that what Jesus is telling us? That it's not our job to judge whether they're worthy of a hamburger or not. It's not our judge to reward them with a hamburger or not. They come, they order it. It's our job to serve. It's our job to treat everybody with dignity and respect, right? It's our job, whoever pulls up to your window, whoever comes to your counter, whoever God puts in your life, that you serve them. He said, that's what greatness looks like. He says, if you really want to be great, if you really want to be great, then become a slave. Become a slave to everyone. Now, what does that mean? That means that you're going to go out of your way. You're going to climb up a hill for the benefit of them, even though, even though they're not treating you great, even though you just told them you're about to die a painful death, and they're concerned, hey, will you do whatever I tell you to do? That's their mentality, even though you just told them you're about to die, this, that you go out of your way and you bless them expecting nothing in return. Be a slave if you really want to be great. Now, Jesus says, the greatest among you will be a servant. The greatest among you will be a slave. But that's hard to believe, isn't it? Because you, you take these concepts and you apply it to just your everyday walking around, going to work, going to school, life, and it doesn't seem like it would be that successful, right? Because the people that they, they organize their life in this way, the people that really live like a servant or live like a slave, they have a hard time getting ahead in this world, don't they? And more often than not, they get walked all over. And so here's the evidence that servanthood is the true path to lasting greatness. Verse 45, for even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus Christ, he came to become the King of kings. That was his agenda, the King of kings, and to establish a kingdom that will never end. And so he he charts a course of how he's going to accomplish this mission. Don't miss this. I'm going to become the king of kings. And here's my course. Does he go and accumulate as much wealth as he possibly could? Does he go and he stockpile a lot of weapons so that he has a lot of firepower? Does he go and assemble an army? Does he go and buddy up with the most powerful men and women on the planet? Does he do any of those things? Jesus says, I have come to be the king of kings. This is the eungulion. This is the good news, the victory pronouncement. The king is here. What does the king do? The king of kings. How does he become the king of kings? What is his plan? What is his mission? He gets on his hands and knees, and he washes his disciples' feet. And he says, as I have done for you, you go and do likewise. He serves. It's his whole life is service. He's a carpenter. What what do people that are handymen, what do they do? They do a service. They provide a service. He does that for 30 years of his life. And then he becomes a traveling preacher. What does he do as a traveling preacher? He goes around, and he's a doctor. He heals people. And he's a a servant. He feeds people. And he's a counselor. He meets with them at the well, and he blesses them with the truth of God and the encouragement of God. 
And he serves and he serves and he serves. And then he gets to the end of his life. And at the end of his life, he climbs an uphill journey. He goes out of his way. What does he get as thanks when he gets to the top of that hill? He dies a painful death. He dies a painful death for the people, the people that are more concerned about themselves than they are his pain. And he dies a penniless, homeless preacher between two common criminals, doesn't even have enough money to bury himself. Nobody comes to his memorial. And yet here we are, right? He gave his life as a ransom. That word ransom, it implies that there was a slave. And so Jesus, the word ransom means that Jesus paid the price. He's not a slave. He pays the price to free this person from slavery. He breaks them out. And so by his blood and his sweat and his tears, he frees us from slavery. Now, the Bible says that we're, just, we're not just guilty of sin, that we're slaves to sin. Okay, don't miss this. What that means is that you're not just guilty of sin that you deserve to be punished. You are entrapped by sin. You are, you are entrapped. You are in bondage to this destructive, this sinful, this evil system, and you don't know how. You don't have the willpower to break yourself out of it. And at the end of this road is a whole lot of guilt and shame and destruction. And Jesus, by his own blood and sweat and tears, he comes in and he breaks you out. He pays the price to pull you out of that system and say, there's a better way. There's a, there's a more meaningful way. There's a greater way. Philippians chapter 2, beginning in verse 1, and I'm done after this. This is a good summary for today's message. If then there is any encouragement in Christ, if any consolation of love, if any fellowship in the Spirit, if any affection and mercy, Paul says, if Jesus has done anything in your life, if you have any love for him whatsoever, if you have any connection with God whatsoever, he says, make my joy complete by thinking the same way, having the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose. Not everybody competing, not James and John going to the front of the line, whispering in Jesus' ear. No, we're all in one accord. We've all got one purpose. We've all got one heart. We've, we're unified because that's what the kingdom of God looks like. How do you get there? Verse three, man, if you applied this to your life, your life would look altogether different. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. But in humility, consider others as more important than yourselves. That's being a slave. Nothing out of selfish ambition, nothing out of vain conceit. I'm gonna look to them, I'm gonna humble myself and I'm gonna say they're better than me. Everyone should look not to his own interests, but rather to the interests of others. I'm going to put their needs and their interests above my own. That's what greatness looks like. Verse 5, adopt the same attitude as that of Christ Jesus, who existing in the form of God did not consider equality with God as something to be exploited. Jesus, the Word, who was there in the beginning, by whom, through whom, for whom, everything is created in the heavenly place, the angels singing his praises day and night. All power, all honor, all glory is his. 
to do with as he pleases. And he looks around at all of his privilege and all of his glory. And what does he do? He does not exploit those things for his own benefit. Instead, he uses his power. He uses his privilege. He uses his glory to bless us. Who existing in the form of God did not consider equality with God as something to be exploited. Instead, he emptied himself by assuming the form of a servant. God steps off his throne in heaven, takes off the crown, steps away from the angels who are praising him day and night, steps out of glory, and he comes down here to earth. He humbles himself, he lowers himself, and he puts on skin and bones. Not born in a castle, not born to a king and a queen, not born in power and privilege, born in a stable, born to an unwed teenage mother, born to a handyman born in a lowly place, and then he serves his whole life. Taking on the likeness of humanity, and when he came as a man, he humbled himself even more by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. You see, crucifixion was reserved. It was so excruciating. It was so terrible. It was reserved for the lowest of the low, a runaway slave. And so Jesus goes from the very highest place. He goes from the, you cannot get any higher, the highest heaven, above the highest heaven. He goes from the very highest place to the absolute lowest position you can find on the planet, a runaway, dishonored slave. A runaway, dishonored slave criminal slave. He goes from the highest position to the lowest position. And then what happens for this reason? What reason? He humbled himself. For this reason, what reason? He became a slave to humanity. For this reason, what happens? God highly exalted him and gave him the name that is above every name. Is that true? Is that true? Does Jesus have the name that is above every name? Is Jesus have the name above every name? He's the greatest human being who has ever lived. He is the most famous person who has ever lived. How did he get to that position? He became a slave. So that At that name of Jesus, every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Don't miss this. The world is lying to you. The world is telling you, you want to be great, be selfish. You want to be great, be deceptive. You want to be great, step on people's back. Stab them in the back. Be, just look out for number one all the time. You want to be great, do that. And Jesus says, no, you want to be great. You want to have a life of meaning and significance? Be a servant. And what's the proof of that? What's the proof of that? Jesus Christ is Lord. And at that name, at that name, every knee will bow. Listen, 
the world. You're going to look around. You're going to look on Instagram and YouTube and Facebook. You're going to look at your office, and you're going to see, you're going to see the deceptive people and the selfish people and the arrogant people and the narcissistic people, and it's going to look like they're climbing, and there's going to be part of you that's going to say, well, I need to follow that path. If I really want my life to matter, if I really want to live a good life, then I need to follow their path, and I want you to know that's a lie because at that name, when he appears, every knee will bow. All the kings and all the queens and all the celebrities and all the wealthy people and all the people that have power and privilege now, even then, those people will bow before Jesus and say, no, you, not me, you are Lord. What's that tell you? The path to greatness is servanthood. Do you want to be great? Do you want to live a meaningful life? Follow in Jesus' footsteps. Now it's going to be scary, right? The followers, they are afraid. It's going to be scary because we don't know what waits us at the top of the hill. And it's going to be an uphill journey. We're going to be swimming upstream because everything else is going to be telling us, no, turn around, go the opposite direction because that's where life is. And Jesus says, no, no, no. You want to gain your life, lose it. And so we climb up the hill and we follow Jesus and we're afraid. But here's, here's the truth. The closer you get to him, your fear will turn in to astonishment. Because this is what you'll realize. Everything he said is true. Because he's a prophet and he's a promise keeper. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. And Lord, I pray today that we'll receive it. Because, Lord, this is the, our world. It doesn't tell us this. We've been programmed. We've been in bondage to a different system that's evil and it's contrary to you and your plan. And, Lord, we can't break out of it on our own. We, we, we need new eyes. We need a new heart. We need to be reborn. Help us today, Lord, to do that. Help us to surrender all of our will to you. Help us to trust you and your ways and your words. And, Lord, help us to give ourselves over to be a slave, a slave to you that we've been bought by your blood. Now we belong to you, and you tell us in service to you that you want us to serve other people, so help us to do that. Forgive us, Lord, when we go back to those chains that you, you, you broke off of us, and we pick them back up and we put them on. Forgive us, Lord, that we do that. Empower us to walk in newness of life. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's all stand together. This is a song of celebration. This is a song of prayer. This is a song of remembrance. So if you come here today and you're carrying a heavy load, please come and let us pray with you. You can kneel at the altar. You can come. I'll be standing up here. I'd be glad to pray. Uh, also, on either side of the stage, we have emblems, crackers, and juice. Uh, this is an awesome opportunity to be reminded of the body and the blood of Christ that paid your ransom. It broke you out. Be reminded that life and walk in it. Imitate it. Also, if you're watching online today, and I'm sure there are a lot of people watching online today, maybe you've never watched this before, and you're hearing this message, and it's kind of opened your eyes, and you realize that you are lost, that you, you don't really understand, and you'd like to live a new life. If that's you today, then just understand you don't have to come to a church in order for your life to be changed. Right where you are, wherever you're watching this, you can just pause and pray a prayer and ask God to forgive you for all your sins. 
surrender to Jesus Christ as your Lord, saying, I'm not going to do things my way anymore. I'm going to trust you, and I'm going to seek you, and ask God to change your heart. And if you'll do those things, the Bible says that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. The Bible says if you confess your sins, God is faithful and just, and he'll forgive your sins and cleanse you from all unrighteousness. Jesus said, whoever believes in me, he will not perish, but will have eternal life. So I'd encourage you to pray that prayer. And if you do, please reach out to us so we can tell you about your next steps. As we sing this song,